Hello, everybody. Before we start today's podcast, I wanted to let you know that I am having a spring celebration sale on my CCRN. So right now you can buy my CCRN online program for $199. There is no code needed. You can just head over to my website at khoppypresents.com or use the link that I've provided in the description. And it is already marked down to $199 in celebration of spring. This online program is worth 30 continuing education hours, 24 7 365 lifetime access, and you'll also be getting periodic updates as they're available. So I just wanted to let you know and enjoy the podcast. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode four of the CCRN Review, where we're going to be discussing the cardiac conduction system, and we'll also take some time to do a basic rhythm review. So if you have not already subscribed, please do so. I would very much appreciate it. You'll be able to follow along with upcoming um, episodes related to the cardiovascular system and all the other remaining systems. Another thing I'd just like to say as a reminder is to please visit me on my website, which is khoppypresents.com. There'll be a lot of information there that you can use in order to prepare for the exam. After each episode, I put a learning activity on my website that you're able to uh, print off and complete in order to capture the things that were covered in that particular podcast episode. So let's start out with one of the major players of the heart when it comes to conduction anyway, and that is the sinus node. We know that the sinus node is really kind of the inherent pacemaker of the heart. And when we say inherent, inherent means inborn. So it's the inborn pacemaker of the heart and it fires at a rate of 60 to 100 normally. Now, certainly it can fire faster than 100 and certainly it can fire slower than 60, in which case we have a sinus bradycardia if the sinus rate is less than 60. And we say that somebody has a sinus tachycardia if somebody has a heart rate over 100, if indeed it is still the sinus mechanism that's running the show. And we'll get into that in a little bit more depth when we start doing our overall basic rhythm interpretation review. So getting back to that sinus node now, it's set up in such a way it fires at a rate of 60 to 100 impulses per minute. And you know, it's really kind of cool when you think about those nodal cells, things like the sinus nodal cells and you think about AV nodal cells, um, they possess this quality that's called automaticity. And automaticity means that they can spontaneously, the cells of the sinus and AV node are able to spontaneously initiate an impulse without any influence or it doesn't need, the cells don't need the influence of the brain saying beat, beat, beat 60 times a minute. However, keep in mind, of course, the central nervous system does have an impact on rate, 
But in the lab, they showed that if you take one single sinus cell, if you can even imagine that, and put it in a saline solution, it actually, that one cell will actually generate an impulse, which just seems pretty uh, incredible. It really does. So they have this sinus navy node have this property of automaticity. So when we talk about the sinus node, again, it's the primary pacemaker of the heart, but it's not always the case. We know that the heart has this general rule, and that is whoever fires the fastest wins. So, and when I say win, of course, I'm, I'm talking about taking over the, the rate and rhythm of the heart. So if we have somebody in a sinus rhythm and they have an irritable focus in the ventricles that starts automatically firing at a very fast rate, and that rate exceeds that of the sinus node, well, the rate that's generated in that irritable ventricle is going to take over. And that's what leads us to see things like VTAC, for example. Maybe this is a patient that has low potassium as an example. Anyway, we'll be getting into that much more in depth later. So if we were to follow the pathway of conduction, sinus node releases the impulses, the impulses spread throughout the atria and then go down to the level of the AV node. And at the AV node, that's where an impulse is going to take about a tenth of a second pause before spreading down to the bundle of hist and the right and left bundle branches. Now, what, what's the deal on the pause? Well, the one thing you have to keep in mind is that electrical events always precede, they precede mechanical activity. So think about it for a second. The impulse just spread throughout the atrium. It took a pit stop at the level of the AV node. And now the atria normally will respond to this impulse by contracting. And we know that that contraction of the atria contributes 30% of the ventricular filling. So when the atria contract, that really is when the ventricle is at its fullest point. Prior to atrial contraction, ventricular filling was really more of a passive event. Then the atria squeeze, contribute that, the, that last 30%. Now we're good to go. The AV valves close, which you learned in episode three, and now pressure builds and we go on from there. So I want you to keep in mind that electrical events precede mechanical activity, such as contraction. And this thought will help you later on when we start talking about hemodynamics and hemodynamic waveforms, because really and truly to be accurate in your hemodynamic interpretations, you should make correlations between the hemodynamic waveforms you're getting on your monitor and the electrical activity that's presented as well. And we'll be getting into that a lot more later. So now back to our pathway of conduction. That impulse went from the sinus node throughout the internodal pathways, sometimes they're called intraatrial pathways as well, to the level of the AV node, where we said that that impulse took a brief one-tenth of a second pause, and that really allows time for the atria to contract to complete ventricular filling. 
Well, now, guys, that impulse is going to spread from the AV node down the bundle of hiss to the right and left bundle branches and out to the Purkinje fibers. So that's where we're going in terms of conduction. So let's back up just a little bit and talk a little bit more in depth about that AV node. Well, the AV node has its own inherent rate, its own inborn rate. So say, for example, if there's a situation in which the sinus node fails or it slows down and the AV node takes over, the AV node as a general rule will take over at a rate of about 40 to 60 impulses per minute. And when the AV node takes over, the patient is said to be in a junctional rhythm because it's the AV junction that is taking over. And so we're going to be talking about the, you know, the specifics of AV nodal rhythms in just a bit when we do our rhythm reviews. But the thing is, is we have to keep in mind that when the sinus node does not work for any reason, we have backup pacemakers that can take over. And the first backup pacemaker that can take over as an escape mechanism is the AV node. And so that's why we say that a person is in a junctional escape rhythm when it takes over for the sinus node that has either failed or slowed down. So the other thing about the AV node is, as we said before, it also has that property of automaticity. It can automatically discharge. And we'll find when we get into our basic rhythm review, we find that the the junction can actually fire at a rate much faster than 60 and in fact, sometimes over 100. And we'll be looking at that as well. So we followed from the AV node down the bundle of hiss, and then we went to the right and left bundle branches. Let's talk about them for a second. The right and left bundle branches are really called fascicles. The right bundle branch is really its own fascicle. It's, it's long and it's thin. And really between the two bundles, the one that is most likely, I mean, if, if a bundle br branch is going to fail or suffer from age-related calcification, or if it's just not going to work, let me tell you, it's going to be the right bundle that is not work because not going to work because it's thin and it's long and hypertrophy and right-sided heart failure can very easily um, affect the ability of the right bundle branch to conduct, in which case we have what's known as a right bundle branch block. And we all learned when we first started in critical care, you know, somebody's in a right bundle branch block. When you look at V1 of your ECG and you see that rabbit ear pattern, always the rabbit ears. And specifically now we typically see that the right rabbit ear is taller than the left in a right bundle branch block. So we'll be talking more about bundle branch blocks once we get into our basic rhythm review. Now let's shift our sights over to the left side. So the left bundle branch really is made up of two fascicles. We have the anterior superior fascicle of the left bundle branch, and we have the posterior inferior 
fascicle of the left bundle branch. So if you do the math and you count them all together here, one fascicle is in and of itself the right bundle branch, and then the left bundle branch has two fascicles. So we already have, you know, when you add it all up, you get three fascicles. So if you know that somebody has bifascicular block, you know that two of the three fascicles are blocked. Whereas, gee, if, you know, somebody has trifascicular block, which generally leads to a very bad day, that means conduction isn't passing down either of the bundles, any of the three fascicles of the right and left bundles. So when we talk about that left bundle, the left bundle, when you look at it, it just looks sturdier. It looks like it, it really is something that is going to stand up to the test of time. And that's why clinically we see that so often, if somebody is going to have a bundle branch block, they are far more likely to have a right bundle branch block rather than a left bundle branch block. Now, Let's get into looking at the fascicles, those two fascicles of the left bundle. The anterior superior fascicle of the left bundle is supplied by the LAD, the left anterior descending coronary. So it makes good sense that if my LAD is having a bad day, I could really have problems with flow to my left anterior fascicle. I could have left anterior fascicular block. You know, um, very commonly when somebody talks about a block of just one of the two fascicles of the left bundle branch, they will refer to it as a hemiblock. Hemi, of course, meaning half. Hemiblock means a block of one of the fascicles of the left bundle. So that's either the anterior superior fascicle of the left bundle or the posterior inferior fascicle of the left bundle. There is no such thing as a right hemiblock. Okay. There just isn't because the right bundle is in and of itself, its own fascicle. It, it really doesn't have additional fascicles that such as what we see over on the left side. Now it's very, very possible. And we see it clinically all the time where a person can have a right bundle branch block in addition to one of the fascicles over on the left side also being blocked. So we say that somebody has a right bundle branch block with a left anterior hemiblock. So that's entirely possible, obviously. And a left bundle is where, of course, there isn't electrical charge going down either one of the fascicles of the left bundle. Now we said that that anterior fascicle of the left bundle branch is supplied by the LAD. And we also talked about if the LAD is having a bad day, that LA, excuse me, that left anterior fascicle is all also going to have a bad day. Now the posterior fascicle, the posterior fascicle is thicker than the anterior and the other thing about that posterior fascicle of the left bundle is that it has dual blood supply. It has dual blood supply, part of it coming from the right coronary artery and the other coming from the LAD. 
So when we talk about that posterior fascicle, it really has a very dependable blood supply. That's why when we look at 12 lead EKGs, it's not all that common to see a posterior fascicle block, but it's very common to see an anterior fascicle block. Because again, that posterior fascicle, when you look at it, it just looks thicker and sturdier. Plus that it has a dual blood supply, which makes you feel as though it is more dependable. So let's talk about that dependability a little bit. When we go back to the sinus node who runs the show, if the sinus node does not work well, and the AV node has to take over as a backup mechanism, I just want to bring up that that AV node is a pretty dependable pacemaker. In fact, we see commonly where elderly people will go into, when their sinus node slows down, they'll go into a junctional rhythm and then kind of back to a sinus and then back to a junctional. All the while, what matters most is the fact that the patient has a decent blood pressure, enough to perfuse vital organs. The patient doesn't get lightheaded. They probably don't even know the difference. So many times clinically, as I'm sure you've encountered, we just plain old stumble over rhythm disturbances when the patient comes into the hospital for something else. Maybe they're coming in for a surgical procedure and um, we do an, an ECG prior and we see that the patient has a, um, a junctional rhythm intermittently. And maybe the surgeon will say, you know what, I'd really rather have cardiology consultation before I move forward with this patient. So, you know, that's something that we can happen. Or they come into the hospital with some other type of chief complaint. And we find that in addition, they have a rhythm disturbance as well. However, no matter what the rhythm, if the rate is too slow, the patient's going to have symptoms in, in most cases, you know, and everybody's definition of too low is different. A lot of people can tolerate a 45 or 50, but when you start talking 35 or 40, you've got somebody that is very symptomatic and lightheaded and so on. Other people can't handle a 50 at all heart rate of 50. So anyway, let's, let's finish off this conduction system and let's go ahead and jump right into the basic rhythm interpretation overview. So the final step of conduction, we said, is going all the way down to those Purkinje fibers. And the Purkinje fibers are located down in the ventricles. Of course, electrical activity precedes mechanical events. So once the ventricles receive the impulse, they're going to go ahead and contract. And they receive the impulse via the Purkinje fibers. Now, unlike the AV node, the Purkinje fibers are not very reliable as a backup mechanism. So if we have a situation where the sinus node fails and the AV node takes over, uh, that's very dependable. If, however, the AV node fails, the Purkinje fibers are not very dependable. What we see when they take over is we see our QRS widen out and we also see our rate drop 
because the inherent rate of the Purkinje fibers is typically less than 40. So now you have a patient pretty well guaranteed that has uh, symptoms, you know, lightheadedness, blood pressure drops. They have that, you know, that pale, cool, clammy uh, appearance to them. So those patients become very symptomatic. So to recap, the quick walk through the conduction system, sinus node, internodal pathways, AV node, bundle of his, right and left bundles, out to the Purkinje's. Know your inherent rate, sinus node 60 to 100, AV node 40 to 60, and then Purkinje fibers less than 40. Also, however, keeping in mind that any one of those areas can fire faster or slower than its intrinsic or inherent rate. So let's set our sights now on a basic rhythm review. And what I'm going to do here is I'm going to talk about the highlights or even better word, the hallmarks of each rhythm family and what causes you, what are your clues to pick out one particular family of rhythms compared to another or one particular block compared to another type of block. So that's where we're going with our discussion now. So let's look at sinus rhythm, sinus brady, sinus tack, and then since it's sinus, let's go ahead and throw that right into our sinus family, and that is sinus dysrhythmia. We also kind of call it sinus arrhythmia. I guess technically dysrhythmia is the best name for it, but people have been using sinus arrhythmia, sinus dysrhythmia interchangeably for so long that uh, really either term is, is fine. Just go ahead and pick one and that would be good. So for sinus tacky, sinus rhythm, and sinus brady, the one hallmark, of course, that differentiates the three of those is the rate. Otherwise, everything else is exactly the same. In other words, they have a normal PR interval, normal QRS, normal QT interval. Now, again, this is just basic rhythm interpretation review. I understand that, you know, maybe that if the patient has a bundle branch block, the QRS will widen. I get all that, but we're going to just go over the normals first, and I'll be adding in things like bundle branch block and QT prolongation and things like that a little bit later in this podcast. So what differentiates sinus rhythm from sinus brady from sinus tack is purely the rate. As a general rule, if you have somebody with a sinus tacky and, you know, the rate is going up and up and up and up, that is really kind of a hallmark of sinus tack, that sinus tack progressively increases in rate over a period of time. Now that period of time might be very short, but I want you to be able to separate that from the person that go, goes into, say, a PSVT, paroxysmal supraventricular tachycardia. Because some people, when they, they see that, they'll say, he went into a sinus tach. Well, you know, it all depends. Did it build up to that tachy? Well, then, sure, it can be a sinus tach. 
But did that tax start abruptly out of nowhere? In other words, the patient was going at a rate of 90 to 100, and all of a sudden, like within a beat, they were going 140. That's paroxysmal. So when we use that word paroxysmal anything, it means abrupt onset. So we see abrupt onset and also very often abrupt termination of the rhythm. And people call it a spurt. You know, people went, people will say things like went into a spurt of, um, SVT or a, had a little run of VT. So that's paroxysmal, right? It's abruptly starts and abruptly stops. Now, <clears throat> keep in mind that uh, sinus arrhythmia is technically part of this family as well because the title starts with sinus. And what differentiates sinus arrhythmia from any of the other members of the sinus family is that sinus arrhythmia is irregular. And if you look at sinus arrhythmia, what you'll notice is that it definitely has a rhythm of the slowing down and speeding up and slowing down and speeding up sinus arrhythmia. And very commonly that occurs with respiration. We see that as people inspire and there's increased flow back to the heart. We can see the the heart rate come up ever so slightly. And then as they exhale, that rate can go down ever so slightly as well. It's not a big dramatic change in heart rate. It's just more of a rhythmic type of um, increasing and decreasing of the patient's heart rate. Granted, if the rate is slow, we say that somebody has sinus bradydysrhythmia. If the rate is fast, we say that somebody has sinus tachydysrhythmia. But I mean, the key point here is the hallmark is that it's irregular compared to the typical sinus brady, sinus tachy, and sinus rhythm, which all normally are regular rhythms. So let's move away from the sinus node now and let's get going on the uh, atrial, the atrial family. The atrial family basically can be broken down into PACs, premature atrial complexes, atrial tachycardia, atrial flutter, and atrial fibrillation. Those are the atrial types of rhythms. Now we know that with PAC, we know the hallmark is, is that it comes in early, comes in prematurely. Sometimes the P wave, you can see it. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes it gets buried in the preceding T wave and will therefore distort, oftentimes distort the shape of the preceding T. So that is the PAC. So as a, as a general rule, of course, we're looking at in somebody that acutely starts having PACs, we're looking at some very typical things that we look as we go out through all of the basic dysrhythmias. And that is checking the patient's uh, pulse ox and checking other things, you know, the patient's vital signs. What are the patient's vital signs? A big one. What is the patient's electrolyte balance? What is their potassium? What is their magnesium? 
um, and also looking at their acid-base balance. So all of these kinds of things come into play as causative factors along with ischemia and, I mean, kind of the sky's the limit. You could throw in congenital heart-related issues, but I'm really not going to get into that. So looking at the underlying cause is really important. We don't call and wake up somebody in the middle of the night, of course, for a PAC, but it could be kind of the writing on the wall for things to come. So we have to be astute to um, other things that might evolve over time when somebody acutely starts having a lot of PACs. Let's move on then to atrial tachycardia. Atrial tachycardia can start very much in a paroxysmal fashion where we have abrupt onset of the atrial tachycardia and an abrupt termination of the atrial tachycardia. And when the atria take over and they're firing fast, I tell you what, they can sure beat out the sinus node because in the adult patient, the sinus node typically maxes out at a rate of around 160-ish. Whereas if it's an atrial tachycardia, atrial tachycardia can get you a heart rate if we have one-to-one P to QRS relationship in conduction. You can have a person that has an atrial tachycardia and a heart rate in the 200s, up to 250. So that is a very rapid rate to say the very least. So atrial tachycardia, the hallmark is, because it's going so fast, you might not even see a a P wave. The hallmark is, is that it's faster than the sinus rate. So if you have somebody that's going fast at a rate of 180, I tell you what, you're not looking at the sinus node there. You're looking at an atrial tachycardia. Let's then get into talking about atrial flutter. Atrial flutter, now we have an atrial rate that can be anywhere between 250 and 350 impulses per minute. Let's just use a real round number and say that we have about 300 impulses uh, that are being conducted down to the AV node in a one minute period of time. Now, thank goodness for the AV node because the AV node is set up in such a way that it can block excessive numbers of impulses from getting down into the ventricles. Because remember, any impulse that makes it down to the ventricles is really going to be your heart rate. And the last thing that we need is an atrial flutter where, you know, if we have 300 impulses in the atria, each one of those impulses conducting down to the ventricles would be a very bad day, would it not? A heart rate of 280 to 300 plus. So the AV node is very protective in that way. Um, Sometimes patients get in trouble because they might have an accessory pathway that bypasses the AV node. So all the impulses then do not go through the AV node and accessory pathways, for example, Wolf-Parkinson-White, can directly link up via an entirely different pathway, the atria with the ventricles, so the AV node is bypassed. So that can lead to some very lethal rhythms as well. So with atrial flutter, what we see is that the P wave actually takes on the shape now of a flutter wave. And if you were to measure out the flutters, if you will, uh, you'd find that in atrial flutter, 
the flutter waves come in at about a rate of 300 a minute. Now, when you look at the patient's heart rate, the patient's heart rate might be 75 to 80, or it might be 150. And here's where a little math comes into play, because if you think about it for a second, if there are 300 impulses in the atria, or 300 flutter waves, and the person's heart rate is 150, that means that the patient has two to one atrial flutter, which means that every other impulse that's going in the atria makes its way through the AV node and down, down to the ventricles where it's having an impact on heart rate. The flutter waves are characteristically uh, very sawtooth. They look like a picket fence. They come in at a rate of around 300. And so when somebody tells me that a patient's going in, you know, patient has a tachycardia of 150, first thing I look for is, is the patient in atrial flutter? Because math would just tell you that if the flutter rate is 300 and this person that the nurse is telling me about has a rate of 150, just do the math. 300 divided by two is 150. So I want to know if it's flutter and I'm going to look for those sawtooth waves. I'm going to look for the picket fence appearance of those, uh, P waves and, um, come in for a diagnosis of two to one atrial flutter. What if that patient's heart rate is maybe let's just say 75 to 80, somewhere around there. Well, I want you to think about it. Number one, look for the sawtooth appearance of the flutter waves. Look for the picket fence appearance of the flutter waves. And then also do a little bit of math. If you know that the hallmark of flutter is that the P waves uh, change to a sawtooth type of appearance and that they come in at a rate of 300 per minute. This is atrial rate now, 300 per minute. Now all I have to do is some math because 300 divided by four is what? 75. So I certainly could have a person that's in an atrial flutter with four to one conduction, or sometimes people will use the term four to one block. So that's atrial flutter. Atrial flutter is very commonly transient where people can go into it and out of it. One of the things that comes to mind when your patient goes into to atrial flutter is, you know, what do the atria look like? Like, have we done an echo recently? Does this person have big dilated atria? Maybe it's a person that has uh, valvular disease, AV valvular disease, which is causing increased pressure and dilation of the atria and causing the person to go into atrial flutter. Is my patient in heart failure? That's another one. Uh, a lot of times, you know, when patients are in heart failure and they go into atrial flutter, atrial fibrillation, one of the best things we can do is, you know, get them out of the heart failure to help them get out of the rhythm in addition to any other antiarrhythmics we, we may need to employ. So enough on atrial flutter. We're going to go next to atrial fibrillation. One of the hallmarks of atrial fibrillation is that it is 
irregularly irregular. In other words, it's a chaotic type of rhythm that leaves you with an irregularly irregular pulse. So that's how we pick up on it. For example, on med surge units, you know, listening to somebody's heart, uh, feeling a patient's pulse where a patient may not be on an EKG monitor. So the hallmark of atrial fibrillation is that since the atria are just quivering, you do not have uniform atrial contraction, you will have fibrillatory waves prior to the QRSs. However, I'm sure you've seen situations where the fibrillatory waves are so hard to see, it just kind of looks like a, like a straight line. But you also notice that there are no discernible P waves and that it's irregularly irregular. So those really are the two hallmarks of atrial fibrillation. No discernible P waves, irregularly irregular rhythm. Now with atrial fibrillation, since the atria are just quivering and you have no uniform contraction, your patient is pretty much a sitting duck for a clot to, to develop in the atria. That's why before cardioverting somebody with atrial fibrillation, we like to do a TEE, a transesophageal echo, to see if there's a clot in the atria prior to converting them out of the, the atrial fibrillation. So remember the, the old rule of thumb, and that is that you know, if left to themselves, meaning no uh, anticoagulation, no antiarrhythmic, no anything, if just left to themselves, 35% of patients with atrial fibrillation with absolutely no treatment will stroke. So they are at very high risk to stroke. So what kinds of patients go into atrial fibrillation? Well, the ones that stand out in my mind certainly are the heart failure patients volume overload patients, acutely dilated right atrium patients, or left atrium patients as well. So it could be somebody with mitral valve disease, mitral stenosis, tricuspid stenosis, or insufficiency. It could be that blue bloater, uh, the COPD that has core pulmonal. They are definitely a sitting duck for atrial fibrillation, and we see it a lot. I want you to think about that person with right-sided heart failure, maybe the COPD or with core pulmonal. We see a big old enlarged right ventricle. That right ventricle tugs on the right bundle branch block, uh, right bundle, excuse me. And now we have right bundle branch block, right-sided volume overload. Now we have a big old dilated right atrium and the person goes into atrial fib. In fact, it's really kind of cool, guys. If you take a look at your patients with big right ventricles, big right-sided heart uh, issues, you'll find that when the right atrium is enlarged, it will produce a specific shape to the P wave. It's called P pulmonal, and it's a tall peaked P wave. We know that normally P waves should be gently rounded and not overly tall, maybe, you know, one millimeter, two millimeters in uh, height. But what we see with a P pulmonal is a pointed P wave that's over 2.5 
millimeters um, in height. So that's two, two and a half or more small boxes in height. And that's related to right atrial enlargement. On the left side, when the left atrium is enlarged, we see what's called P mitrale. And P mitrale is where the P wave kind of takes on a double hump appearance where it looks like it has two humps to it with a little notch in between. And what we're seeing with P mitrale is we are basically seeing the dyssynchrony in contraction, or I should say dyssynchrony in the spread of impulses from the right side over to the left side in terms of the atria. So it's taking longer for that impulse to spread from right to left and across the left atrium because the left atrium is so enlarged. So that's called P mitrale. And of course, left atrial dilatation happens quite frequently in mitral valve disease. So that's obviously where it uh, likely got its name. So we have been through the atrial family now. We have talked about uh, atrial fib and we've talked about atrial flutter. We've talked about atrial tack and PACs. The only other uh, member, if you will, of the atrial family is wandering atrial pacemaker. And the accepted abbreviation for wandering atrial pacemaker is WAP, W-A-P, wandering atrial pacemaker. Now, what is the hallmark of this wandering atrial pacemaker? The hallmark is uh, changes in P wave morphology. So of course, when we talk about P wave morphology, we're talking about the shape of the P waves. And what we see with wandering atrial pacemaker is that if you print out a one minute strip, you would see that the P wave shape changes three times in a one minute strip. And what wandering atrial pacemaker means is you have different areas in the atria, different sites, let's say in the atria that are kind of taking turns firing. Now the person's overall heart rate generally is just fine. Generally, we just stumble over this. It's not something that we particularly treat. It's something that we observe and continue to monitor because it's considered, um, a normal variant. So we have been through sinus and atrial families. Let's move on down to the AV node. And we're going to start talking about junctional rhythms and AV nodal block. So let's talk about junctional rhythms first. PJC, PJC, premature junctional complex. So just like PAC, it comes in early. It is sometimes preceded by a P wave, but one of the hallmarks of junctional rhythm is that if you see a P wave at all, it will be inverted in lead two. So it'll be upside down in lead two. Why lead two guys? Because in lead two, everything should be upright. Everything should be up, upright in lead two. So upright P wave, upright QRS, upright, upright T wave. That's just the normal QRS complex configuration in lead two. 
So basically what we see is that when the P wave is inverted in, le in lead two, what that means is, is that the atria are receiving impulses retrogradely from the bottom up versus the top down. So from the standpoint of lead two, who has its positive pole located on the left leg, when the AV node fires and impulses move from the bottom up through the atria, that will give us a inverted or an upside down, tipped over, whatever word you like to use, P wave. And that is a huge hallmark for any junctional beat or rhythm. Now, another thing to keep in mind is that uh, the PR interval in a junctional beat or rhythm will be shortened. Because if you recall, when we talked about sinus rhythms, we said that that little pause at the level of the AV node allowed time for the atria to contract. But since the AV node is the one that's initiating the impulse, there won't be a pause at the level of the AV node. Therefore, we see a shortened PR interval. So let's summarize. Let's recap here. The hallmark of any junctional beat, beats, or rhythm is that if you see a P, the P wave will be inverted. Okay. The PR interval, if you see a P wave, will be shortened. And then finally, the last criteria is that the P wave may be found before, within, or after the QRS. Because keep in mind, depending upon where within the AV node, the impulse is firing, it may, it being the impulse, might hit the atria first, in which case we have a P wave in front of the QRS, or what if the impulse in the AV node actually originated dead center between the atria and the ventricles? In that particular case, the P wave gets lost or buried inside the QRS. Finally, what if when the AV node fires, the impulse makes its way to the ventricles first before getting up to the atria? Well, in that case, we're going to see an inverted P wave after the QRS. But I want you to be looking after the QRS here, guys. I don't want you to be looking in the downslope of the T or after the T wave. If we have a junctional rhythm and the P wave is retrograde or after the QRS, it is really going to be found immediately after the QRS. So we're really talking about that ST segment is where it will be found. So the last thing then is the junctional rhythm, P waves inverted, PR intervals shortened, P wave can be found before, within, or after the QRS complex. So uh, we're going to just move on then and talk about AV blocks. I think if I had to pick out one set of rhythms that disturbs critical care nurses the most and frustrates them is the, the subject of AV blocks. Because especially when you get to second degree where you've got two different types and then third degree AV block, Sometimes it really makes you feel like pulling your hair out to determine whether it might be a second degree type two or a third degree AV block. So I hope to be able to give you some hallmarks to work with here. Let's first talk about 
first degree AV block. The one hallmark is that the PR interval is prolonged and the other is there is one to one P to QRS ratio. One P for every one QRS complex. That's it. All right. So that is a first degree AV block. Second degree has two different types. We have second degree AV block type one, which is also known as Mobitz one, which is also known as Winkybach. I mean, how nice we have three different names for the same thing. Now, what are the hallmarks for Winkybach? Well, what first makes you look for Winkybach is when you look at a strip and you see that the beats are occurring in groupings. The groupings might be a grouping of two, a grouping of four. You might even find once in a while where there's a group of one, but what you very commonly see is that in between the groups, you can see a P wave sitting there all by itself. So that's a non-conducted beat, a non-conducted P wave. So the first thing you look for or what make would make you suspicious of a winky buck is that there would be beats occurring in groupings. That's why winky buck is very commonly called a regularly irregular type of rhythm because the beats occur in groupings. The next thing we'll see is that the PR interval will get longer, longer, longer within a grouping until finally a beat is dropped and then the whole cycle starts over again. So can you tell the difference right away between first, first degree and a winky buck? First degree, every P is followed by a QRS. Well, hey, not so in winky buck. We have some drop beats. Furthermore, first degree PR interval is constant, whereas winky buck PR gets longer, longer, longer within a grouping. So Winky, Winky Bach is commonly an ischemia induced rhythm, which we had talked about earlier when we were looking at inferior wall MIs. So it's commonly an ischemia induced rhythm and it also can be very transient, but I kind of cautioned you to think about every time you see Winky Bach, it must be because the person's heart is ischemic. You, you really can't make that particular link up. While it's caused very commonly by ischemia, it doesn't always mean ischemia is there. We also see Winky Bach very commonly in the elderly. And, you know, what's defined as an aged conduction system is any conduction system 72 years of age or over. And of course, that is our elderly population. So we may be seeing it uh, with that population as well. So, depending upon the patient's heart rate, we may need to intervene. So all of these blocks, when you look at them, one of the things that we're going to be uh, really focusing on is when we see a block, what is the patient's heart rate? And is that heart rate adequate in maintaining a decent blood pressure? And is the rhythm reliable? Because if it's not, hey, maybe the patient needs a pacemaker. So electrical therapy is warranted. Let's move on then from Winky Bach into second degree uh, AV block type two, which is also known as Mobitz two. Now listen to what happens here. 
In Mobage 2, we have an intermittent block at the level of the AV node, an intermittent block. So just those words alone should tell you, sometimes the P wave makes its way through down to the ventricles, other times the P wave does not. So therefore, what do we see? We see far more P waves than we do QRSs. We see a constant PR interval in the P wave that does conduct which makes it way different from Winkybach because Winkybach, we said we had PR intervals that were progressively prolonging. Mobitz 2, we have PR intervals that remain constant. Well, now you might be getting kind of foggy in your head and saying, well, whoa, 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 what about first degree? Because in first degree, all the PR intervals were constant. And yep, I did say that. But I also said in first degree, the hallmark is what? First degree, every one P wave for every one QRS. So we have a one-to-one relationship of P waves to QRS complexes. Whereas in a Mobitz 2, all, you know, all bets are off with that because we have P waves that are not followed by QRSs. We have an intermittent conduction pattern. And we usually say, you know, we usually address in our interpretation the number of P waves there are in front of the QRS. So we'll say, you know, somebody has a Mobitz 2 with 2 to 1 conduction or 4 to 1 conduction. And you can understand that as that number gets higher, the conduction ratio gets higher, your patient's heart rate's getting slower and slower and slower. So that's Mobitz, Mobitz 2, the hallmark far more P waves than there are QRSs, constant PR interval. That's huge. Now the last type of block is known as third degree. Sometimes third degree is also referred to as complete heart block. And so when we talk about third degree, the hallmark of a third degree AV block is AV dissociation. AV dissociation where we have more P waves than we do QRSs. And the key point here is that there is no relationship between the P's and the QRSs. So do you remember in Mobitz 2, Mobitz 2, we said that there was a nice constant PR interval. It might be prolonged, but it's still nice and constant. Uh, Not so with a complete heart block. Complete heart block, we do not have a constant PR interval at all. There's no relationship between the P's and the QRS's. Now, when you have a complete heart block, of course, you have to address the underlying mechanism that's keeping the person alive. So you just can't say complete heart block and call it a day. Like, okay, um, what's keeping them alive? We know that we have two basic backup mechanisms that can take over, correct? We can either rely then in complete heart block on the AV node itself firing. And then we typically have a narrow QRS we see at a rate that's right around that AV nodal rate, somewhere in the forties, fifties range, narrow QRS. If however, the AV node is not taken over at a backup mechanism, then the last uh, possible hope we have of surviving is that the Purkinje fibers take over. But I want you to remember that Purkinje fiber conduction is very unreliable. We talked about that before. 
the QRS will widen out, and it should be making you think about asystole at this point. That's really what it should be making you think about is asystole. And so um, the rate is very slow. The rate is typically less than 40. So the way that we say this then and address the backup mechanism is we say complete heart block with underlying junctional escape or complete heart block with underlying ventricular escape. So uh, I hope this has helped as far as differentiating the blocks. I'm going to do a quick recap. Hallmarks of first degree, one to one P to QRS ratio. And the PR intervals prolong. That's the, the hallmark there. Winkybach, second degree AV block type one. PR interval gets longer, longer, longer. The beats occur in groupings and the groupings are separated by a dropped beat. Second degree AV block type two, more P waves, then you have QRSs. The PR interval remains constant. It might be prolonged, but it remains constant. And then finally, third degree AV block, which we talked about just a little bit ago. And we said the hallmark there is AV dissociation. We have more P waves than we do QRS complexes, and there's no relationship between P's and QRS's. AV dissociation is present. So moving on down to kind of the end of the line, really, is when you talk about ventricular conduction, this is where we have things like PVCs, VTAC, and VFib. Now, PVCs, well, premature ventricular complex comes in early. And the hallmark sign there is you see a wide, bizarre-looking QRS complex. Comes in early, it's wide, PVC. They can be, you know, they can look alike. We can say that they um, are multifocal, they look different, or unifocal, they look the same. And then there's VTAC. VTAC is where we have a tachycardia and we have a wide QRS complex. If we see a P wave now and again, it's probably dissociated. But as we learn in ACLS, we know that VTAC can have a, a few different presentations typically based on the patient's rate of the VTAC. Somebody can come in with a VTAC at a rate of 150, be looking at you and saying something's really wrong here. My heart is beating really fast and I don't feel good. The other option is, is you can have somebody that's in a VTAC and they are clearly shocky. They still have a pulse, but they're clearly shocky. So now we have somebody that has symptomatic VTAC somebody that we're going to get in there and we were, we're going to cardiovert them because they have a pulse. Okay. You want to cardiovert a person that has VTAC with a pulse. And then the third option here is we can have somebody that's pulseless VTAC without a pulse. And of course, that's the person that we want to get in there and defibrillate as soon as possible. The same can be said for VFib. VFib uh, is just an undulating squiggly line, fibrillatory line uh, that we see that needs to be shocked. It needs to be defibrillated. I've had people come and say, okay, now what's the difference between AFib and VFib? Now I want you to think about that for a second, right? What vital complex is missing 
in V-fib that is present in A-fib? Well, in A-fib, you have a QRS. You have a pulse in A-fib. V-fib, there is no QRS. You are pulseless and you need defibrillation. Last but not least, uh, I would like to go over the um, ventricular generated rhythms. Um, and really we're only talking about one here and that is idioventricular rhythm, idioventricular. So kind of a self-starting rhythm that occurs in the ventricle. That is really the end of the line. It's the last backup pacemaker that is taking over as both the sinus node and the AV node fail. So really what we're looking at here is the dying heart. However, we may also be looking at somebody that has hyperkalemic crisis. So our renal patients that have missed a couple of dialysis treatments during the week, and they come in with this big, wide QRS and bradycardia, they feel syncopal. So um, again, with this particular patient, obviously we have to have a firm grasp on whether this patient is a full code or a no code because immediate intervention is required because any rhythm that originates down in the Purkinje fibers, we know it to be not only slow and easily identifiable because it has a wide QRS complex, but we also know that it's very undependable. Okay. A couple of other things, and then we're done with this particular episode, bundle branch block, When we talk about bundle branch block, the very first hallmark for bundle branch block is the QRS must exceed 0.12 seconds. Okay. 0.12 seconds. And so for a right bundle in V1, what you're going to see is an RSR prime, which we know in critical care to be the rabbit ear pattern. In V6, we'll see a QR with kind of a slurred S at the end. But most of us, when we talk about looking at our monitors in ICU or on the step-down units, we have the dual dual channels up, we have lead two and V1, which is your chest lead. So look for the RSR prime in the presence of a wide QRS. Left bundle, you are just going to have a wide, broad QRS complex in V1 or our, our chest lead. And you're going to have, if you looked at a 12 lead and you looked at V6, you'd see a big, wide, tall, upwardly deflected QRS because V1 and V6 are on opposing sides of the chest. And so, um, they're, they're showing you opposite things. So right bundle, RSR prime, right, uh, that's for right bundle, left bundle, just big, wide, broad, negatively deflected QRS in your chest lead V1. The last topic for this episode is talking about, uh, QT intervals. We know that QT intervals are very highly dependent upon the patient's heart rate. So as the patient's heart rate gets faster, 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 the QT interval will shorten. Whereas the patient, when the patient's heart rate slows, we're going to see the QT interval also uh, become wider. It's important when you do your measuring and your documentation of a patient's QT interval that you look at the corrected QT. 
Oftentimes the way that this, this looks is a Q and a T and a subscript down after the T of the letter C, QTC, which is QT corrected. That means it's corrected for the patient's heart rate, given the fact that the patient's heart rate has quite an impact on the QT interval. So you want to use your QTC. Most monitoring systems have the capability of providing you with that QTC. And that's really what we're using to guide treatments and therapies and things like that. The normal QT corrected is 0.32 to 0.44 seconds um, or 320 to 440 milliseconds, depending upon how you like to look at it. And the one thing, of course, that we're trending, it's definitely a trending measure, is we're trending the QT interval because we know that when a person's QT interval is prolonged, it really sets that person up for an impulse to hit on the downslope of the T and we could have torsade, we could have VTAC, we could have VFib. So we're very conscientious of our, our QT interval and we trend that measure. If we have a patient on our unit that we're doing ticosin loading uh, or uh, sotolol loading, it's really uh, very important to watch that QTC one hour before and two hours after administration. And I'm specifically referring to sotolol here. So we don't want to put the patient in a situation where QT prolongation can actually result in torsade. I am going to be talking a lot about antiarrhythmic agents when we start talking about electrical and pharmacotherapy for the treatment of arrhythmia. So we'll be getting into QT prolongation with different types of arrhythmias in the next episode, which will be episode five. So thank you very much for joining me today. And please don't forget to subscribe. Would love to have you join me for future episodes. And don't forget to check me out at khoppypresents.com. I have some worksheets that go along with today's content in order to help you prepare for your exam. Take care and I'll see you in future episodes. Bye-bye now.